Welcome to the Love Your Story podcast. Today's story, What Kindness Can Do, starts out with the story of Peter Mutbazi. The vine came down on me so fast, I did not have time to duck. It ripped across my right arm and burned like fire. You worthless piece of, my father yelled as he swung the vine around like a bullwhip. I spun around to protect my face. Don't you turn away from me. He grabbed my shoulder with his left hand, turned me around, and brought the vine back down across my neck and chest. Out of the corner of my eye, I saw my aunts, uncles, and cousins running out of their houses. They had come not to stop my father, but to watch. Nibikoni was a very small village. This is what passed for entertainment. Peter Mutabazi joins me today to share the story of his life in Uganda, his brave escape from an abusive father at 10 years old, his subsequent life as a child living on the streets, struggling daily to stay alive, and the fortuitous meeting of a man who would change Peter's life and in so doing change the lives of his siblings, their children, and all the children Peter now helps as a foster parent. Stay tuned for my talk with the author of Now I Am Known. Stories are our lives in language. Welcome to the Love Your Story podcast. I'm Lori Lee, and I'm excited for our future together of telling stories, evaluating our own stories, and lifting ourselves and others to greater places because of our control over our stories. This podcast is about empowerment and giving you, the listener, ideas to work with in making your stories work for you. Story power serves you best when you know how to use it. Peter believes that every child and every person deserves to be known. He has dedicated his life to advocating for children and youth. Peter grew up feeling unheard and unseen, which you will definitely hear and understand as he tells his story. He knows what it feels like to believe you do not matter at all in the world. And he also knows what it feels like to slowly come out of that one step at a time. So here's his story. Peter, welcome to the Love Your Story podcast. Hello. Yes, I am absolutely thrilled to be with you today, Laurie. Thank you for allowing me to be part of your of your audience as well. Absolutely. It is our honor. So we always start with your story and it's such a moving story. So please take the bulk of our episode today telling us your story and start with that little boy in Uganda at home. In the book, it starts out, when I was 10 years old, I'd given up on life. Take us there. Yes, when I was 10 years old, and I think as you grow older as a kid, you know, the abuse changes in a different way. Uh, it's the same, but as you grow older, you understand it in, in a whole different way. And as growing up at 10, I think I, uh, the most difficult was watching abuse come towards me and towards my mom as well. So I think at 10 years old, not, not being able to protect my mom or watching my mom get most of the beating because she was advocating for us, that really made uh, that difficult for me. So I didn't want to see it. I didn't want to leave. And I didn't, I was done with life in some way. So for me, when my father sent me to go buy cigarettes that night and it was raining and I knew coming back, I was going to get the beatings. I thought this is a time 
I should give my life away. So for me, running away wasn't like I was looking for a better place. I think I thought if I should die, I should die in the hands of a stranger, not my father. So for me, I walked to the bus station and I said, hey, of all these buses, which one goes the farthest? One I asked because I knew if I, my father found me, I mean, he'll kill me. But on the other end, I thought if I should die, I never want him to have the joy of burying me. So that was the whole reason why I asked the lady, which one goes the farthest? And the lady showed me and I ran away and I ended up in Kampala. But that night, it was more of life for me to now should be the end. You know, that I should not watch my mother or my siblings hear the abuse that we're about to hear tonight. And I'm not going to give the joy to my father to do so. So that was the reason why that night at 10 years old, I thought I am done living. And that's why I went away. I can't imagine at 10 years old having those kind of feelings and also having the courage to hop on a bus and travel and run for your life, really. Like, that's incredible. Tell us a little bit about where you're coming from. Tell us about Uganda and your village and your mom and your family. Kind of what was that home base like? You know, I grew up in a small village, you know, where everyone around me was poor. Everyone was poor. So it wasn't something where you said, well, you know, maybe it's us who are feeling the pain of not having food. It was everyone. So there wasn't an example to say, maybe I want to be like family number B. No, you're all poor. All the kids went to fetch water three miles away. All the kids went to the garden. All the kids never had shoes. All the kids had one pair of clothes. And that was my background as a kid. You know, I'd grown from a home where no one ever told me to dream. No one ever said, hey, Peter, one day you can be something. No, you know, it's hard for a mother. If they can't feed you for a night, how do they tell you to really dream in some way? But also, as I, you know, as we get older, we get to know the meaning of our names. My last name is Javier Mana, which means a gift given to us by God. And I understood the way I got that name was because for every 100 children were born in my village, 60 would die before the age of two. So my mother was afraid to give me a name until when I made it two. So she said, well, he survived. So I'm going to call him. He's a gift or he's a produce given to me by my God. So my just my name gives me the background of how miserable and how lucky I was even to make it a two. So from the get go, that's all I knew. Misery. You know, there was never food. There was never peace. There was no glimpse of hope. There wasn't anything that can say I look forward to seeing tomorrow. None, none, none. There was no food. You worked so hard at age of four. I was able to go fetch three miles away at age of four. You know, I was able to, to dig and help in the garden at age of four, you know. So at age of four, I could do things for a 50, what a 15-year-old in the United States can do. And so for me, there wasn't really any joy. And that was my background as a kid where I just day to day just went. You, you dreamed to see today. You never thought about tomorrow because today was hard enough that you're like, okay, I'll stick today. If we have no meal today, I'm not sure there can be a meal tomorrow. So that is really the, the little background of what my life was. Uh, and as I said, you know, everyone around me was poor. So it, it kind of felt like we are all in the same boat or we all have no hope. You know, all the kids, we went to fetch water the same way, you know, uh, and that is a little bit of my background. Uh, that, that mortality rate is just staggering. That's incredible. And I'm assuming that probably more died before they reached 18 of starvation and other things. It sounds like it was incredibly rough. 
Absolutely. You know, and malaria too. So the, what killed the kids was mostly malaria. So think of it. Malaria is not a really a bad disease, you know, but when you're hungry, when you haven't eaten for days, when you're dehydrated, when you're malnourished, to have malaria, it will take you within 24 hours. Again, because your body is too weak to really fight this simple virus. Sure. Uh, and, that's, and, and that's why most kids will die. Or that's why most moms will lose their kids before they are born because they'll get malaria and they don't know what to do and they will lose their kids. So tell me about your relationship with your dad then. Let's set that foundation because that's really important and is going to come out big when we get into part two of my discussion with you. So what was that relationship like? So from the get-go, you know, as I could understand at the age of two, like I cannot remember to this day my father holding me my father speaking words of kindness to me or to hear anything positive out of my father, either towards me or towards my mom. You know, I, I grew up at the age of four. If my father was sitting in the living room, you made sure you look for another way to get in the house so you didn't see eye to eye. You know, to I mean, until when I was 30, like I'm not sure I ever looked in my dad's eyes or sat next to him because of who he was, just the fear, the abuse, you know, his words, you know, I never had one kind word uh, from my dad. You know, like kids, we we do so much things to please our dads or our moms. You go fetch water, you come back and you say, my dad is going to say, well, good job, son. No, you know, your father came and said, you're useless, you're garbage, you'll never amount to anything. I wish you were never born, so I have no, I don't have to feed you. Those are the things you had every day from your father, you know. But if the beating weren't coming towards you, it was coming to your little brother. If it wasn't your little brother, it was your mom. So there was a constant commotion of abuse, either verbally or physically. That's all I know about my father, someone that I never, never from as little as I can remember, wanted to be around, you know? If he was at home, you're tense, you're afraid, you're worried, what, what's, what is he gonna do? And if he didn't do anything, is what the, you know, what came out of his mouth that I knew of my father. Not in any fatherly way that I, I, that I understand now, you know? But I really never, as I said, he never held me, he never said any kind of words, I could never even dare being five feet from him, you know? So that's the kind of father that I really knew. And he didn't enjoy being home. So he worked, so he'll go work. He comes home for an hour. He goes to drink. He comes at three in the morning, the beatings, the fighting. So he wasn't, I can't say he's a man who wanted to be at his home all the time. He just worked and drunk um, is all I knew. So on that fateful night, you said that making the choice to run from your father that night, quote, was my first step toward taking power over my own life, unquote. And as you got off that bus, well, your dad asked you to go get cigarettes. You realize that no matter what happens, you're running out there in the rain, no shoes, trying to go get him his cigarettes. And you know whether you, when you get back, you're going to get beat because either it took too long or it didn't take long enough or whatever it is. So you make that choice you talked about earlier of, I want, I'm just, I'm going to run. I'm going to take off out of here at 10 years old. And you get on this bus and you say, quote, a sense of freedom and power that I had survived a nightmare. Catching the bus to Kampala was my ticket to hope. And it was the beginning of learning to see myself differently. Take us to that bus ride and what you remember from that part of your story. How, how does this different you start opening up? So I had never been on a bus, you know. I, again, it was my decision to run away. So 
the decision to run around actually do it that was another thing so once i walked which was about five miles away from my my my, my home to the bus station so i walked it was three in the morning fearful of wild dogs fearful of someone would harm me so once i go to the bus station and the, and i sat on it they didn't charge the money until halfway the journey so i knew okay i'm set so getting on and the bus starting to move that's when i begin to realize like wait a minute I have power. I have power to make a decision about my own life, that I have power in some way to make the the way in some way that I will never let my father do this again. The, the, the bravery that I took to run away, that I think what encouraged me to say, you know what, I have that. Even when I knew I was heading to death, it was more of it's on my, it's on my call. It's my decision. I on my terms. Yeah. <laughs> it's on my terms. Like it's not my father's time. So there was that freedom of, I didn't know where I was going. I didn't care if my life ended. Yes, but it was on my terms. And so being on that bus, that's I think when I began to realize like, wait a minute, you know, there's power in when you decide to make these decisions for yourself. And I could see the impact that was going to impact me in a positive way or negative way, but also to those that I'd left behind. I think my mother, I thought, now my mom is going to worry. Now my mom is going to worry where is my son. But at the same time, that also knew that I needed to run, like I needed to run. That's that's all I could think about. It wasn't anything else that I could think through. Uh, and so for me, getting on the bus was scary, you know. And as we drove, you know, as a little boy, I thought I had the power to stop the bus. So every time it would stop to get people off or to get people on, I would push so hard because in my head, I thought I have the power to make it move because I felt like I had the power to move away, to run away, but I can make the bus move. Uh, and as Look a at your old... powerful spirit. I love that. This little boy trying to take the power to just make things happen. That, that's beautiful. Yes. You know, our traumas and or any unkind learning environments that we have Certainly, there's a space of stunted emotional development and our capacity to see ourselves as we truly are is, you know, becomes very, very twisted. And you said, quote, we carry the injustices throughout our lives, never achieving our full potential. We settle for surviving, unquote. Um, Tell me a little bit about what you meant by that. Well, I think for me, all my life, I, you know, all I could think about survive. How do I survive tonight from the abuse from my father? How do I survive? I survive from tonight from the lack of food. You know, how do I survive the poverty? So all my life was what? What do I survive? You know, it wasn't when what. It was just everything around you that I really had to learn to survive. That until I moved away, until I began to see greater hope, then I was like, wait a minute, you know, the survival mode isn't actually, it wasn't helping me or leading me to anywhere. It's all I could do. So it, it would make me sure. stunted in some way that the food is all I could think about, you know, though I could have gone to school and done well in school. Well, I didn't have those opportunities, but I don't think I would have survived ever, ever done well in school when I knew I was coming home to an empty stomach, to a place I was going to go with no meal. That still my focus would have been a meal that I think I would have forgotten or would not have concentrated on my school. So, yes, I think when you lack of, when you're poverty or when you, in a traumatic world, you, you think of the basic survival mode and there's nothing else you can think about. So it's it's not easy to see hope. It's not easy to see the future. You're thinking in the moment, how do I survive now? And I think that's 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 where the message was coming from because I saw 
you know, how lost I was. Sure. And, you know, in Maslow's hierarchy of needs, I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it talks about it has different levels of needs that we have that have to be fulfilled before we can move to the next level. And of course, shelter and food and those basic things is that primary level before we can move to even comprehending or understanding having the next need filled, we have to have that one. So I think it's really crucial to your story because even as you get off the bus, you go all the way to the end of the bus line, you get off the bus, and then here you are as a 10-year-old and We'll, we'll start at this point in the story again. I'll have you pick up here. But you're still in a place of survival. You join this um, group, this gang of little boys who are trying to survive. And again, everything is focused on trying to get enough food to, to just make it through the day, right? Like, And this mindset of being there, so many of us have no comprehension of what that would be because so many of us don't have to have to struggle or live with that. And that makes your story just you're taking us to a world that we luckily are not familiar with. But take us take us to getting off the bus and meeting these kids and and the mindset that you had in that part. You know, so I had never been 20 miles away. So here I am 500 kilometers away, you know, to a to a, a city. They spoke different language. There was so much commotion. It was a city where everything was just vibrant and moving and chaotic in a way. So arriving there, that was traumatic enough to say, oh, Lord, what am I going to do? You know, so as I stayed on the bus trying to figure out what, what's my next step, you know, I saw a little boy who was stealing food. You know, he would help people on the bus, but leave the food behind. So he came back to pick up the food he had left behind you know and he looked in my eyes and he's like you are only one on the bus meaning you're lost so come over come let's go you know from the get-go he, he really embraced me and, and and brought me in remember all my life i think i had been trained to learn to survive survival mode that's all i knew so joining the street it wasn't so much of a jump it was it was different in abuse but it was the same you know how do we survive today so they thought you know they really taught me how to steal food how to target people what kind of food do i have to sleep you don't have to steal meat if you can't cook it you know we only steal what we can roast or cook right away you know like cassava like a banana like a tomato you can eat it and that's how they really taught me but also they taught me on how to survive among the you know there were more than 2,000 kids on the streets of Kampala and some were dangerous kids and so we had to learn about who's safe among us and the agement is really what helped us you know agement or the background of where we came from uh, really united us or made us you know kind of really work together so I was in a group of 15 to 20 kids who were all the same age 10 between 10 and 15. And that's became our lives on really learning how to survive. You know, I learned to be idle is dangerous. You know, being idle, that means someone can harm me, harm you. If a police came, they will take you or someone will pour on your acid or someone will run over you. So you, you kind of had to learn, if I can keep moving, I'll be safe. So right, right away, I had to learn a whole different living of surviving, you know? Why would people pour acid on you? Well, people were, you know, people were mean and angry, you know, uh, they didn't really care about street kids. The street kids were treated more like uh, like stray animals. Think of how you treat a stray animal. That's how they, they would treat us. 
you know, so if someone was angry and they are, you know, I don't know, have hot cold, they would just throw it anywhere. And if their kids sleeping under that camel over you. And I lost some of my friends that I had to bury, you know, ourselves because they, they died of something because someone caused harm on them. And it wasn't a world that you can report. It wasn't a world that you can say, no, you know, you, you kind of really knew how to survive. And that became my world. At home, I think I survived on 24 hours or 12 hours. On the streets, I learned how to survive on an hourly basis. So that was the difference because wow. every hour I had to figure out, am I safe? You know, remember, we're street kids, so we'd sleep in the garbage. In the garbage is where, the, I don't know if you've been at the third world council, where they heap garbage, heaps and heaps and thousands of tons of garbage, where there's burning, there are dogs. And that was a safe place to go if you needed rest. But you think of it, it's like you're going to sleep in the sewer just so you can find safety, you know. Uh, wow. But also we'll go, we'll go to sewer canal, which is in the middle of the city. And then we go under, you know, that's where we'll hide just so we can have a little piece uh, of life. And that became our life. So for me, I, I, I mean, I had to learn to survive on, on, on every hour because I wasn't guaranteed the next hour. And this uh, was your life for five years, right? Correct. From 10 to 16 to 15 years. Wow. So let's talk about how you moved out of that. How did you, well, you went and lived with your aunt first, right? Was was that before James or? Yes. So while on the streets, I've been there for about two years. Then, you know, someone saw me and told my aunt who was, you know, lived in a prostitute world, you know, a place with slum area where it was more chaos than on the streets. And so he invited me to go stay. And I thought, hmm, you know, I, I can go. So then I went to live with, with them for about three or six months. And then I went back on the streets. Okay. So one of the things I loved in your book, after living with your aunt and then choosing to live or choosing to leave, you said, quote, from these days, I learned that finding goodness and happiness takes a lot of attempts. Try, fail, try again, and again, and again, for as long as it takes. If we keep fighting, we will journey to a better place. Even the process of trying and saying, I will, guides us to recognize strength and goodness, unquote. I loved when you said this because your spirit is so indomitable. The things that you have come up against and even this idea that, um, you know, you had been given a home now, somebody to take you off the street to live with your aunt, but it was so hard and brought back bad memories because of the, you know, the the abuse to the women around you, that type of thing. What what I started thinking was how beautiful it was that you could be in a place and just realize, okay, I get to try in a different way to be happy. And the thing that I thought about was I thought about with social media and us in the United States right now, how often, um, especially when we compare our real lives to things that are portrayed in social media, that people feel if they aren't in a place of happiness and joy at every moment, that they're failing or their life is growing wrong. And that's where like the suicide rates start skyrocketing. Um, I also think there's power and acknowledgement that we get to choose joy every day, that we get to choose happiness, that we get to fight for it, that we work for it. And so I really loved that about this place you're in because you're just in the lowest and most difficult of places, but you can choose in this time of struggle to say, I'm going to learn something from this. Um, and I thought that was fantastic, Peter. Yes, absolutely. And I remember all my life was 
every day you had to learn how do I avoid abuse from my dad? You know, every day you had to learn a, a different way on how do I make it today? And on the streets in Kampala, the same thing. So for me, a long life as I grew older, I had to learn, hey, today I was abused by a woman because she abused me sexually. Well, tomorrow I'm not going to let that happen. But tomorrow is going to be something else, you know. So every every time something happen, happened, I looked for another way I can find glimpse of hope, you know. Yes, I went to live with my my, my aunt. Yes, you know, it, you know, first few weeks it was wonderful. But later it became hell and I went back on the streets. But I didn't give up on like, oh, life, I should end it today. No, I think I found in every challenge there was another way I can find a little glimpse of hope the next day that I don't have to feel the same pain that I felt yesterday. You're a you know? fighter. Yes, you're a fighter. So take us to the story about James. When did you meet James um, and what did he do for you? Because this is the this is the real catalyst. This James is the one that we're talking about when we talk about what kindness can do. James is this beautiful being who changes your life. So tell us about him. Well, but that did start in a good way. So remember, so so <laughs> as, as three kids, we learned, we learned who to steal from, who can afford food. So if you're wearing glasses, that means you can afford glass uh, food. You, you buy food so we can steal food from you. If you're wearing khakis and shoes and you speak English, you, those are the qualifications that we looked for to food from. So for me, I saw a man who was wearing khakis, glasses, you know, and I thought, I am going to steal from this guy. So I followed him. So it wasn't like I, I, there was anything good about him. No, I just followed him. And as soon as he bought the food, I, you know, I carried, I said, Wait, where's your car? I'll take it. And he's like, wait, 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 please put my food down. And I was like, oh no, this one is becoming difficult. So, but before I could do so, he said, what's your name? I had lived on the streets for four and a half years. No one had ever, ever at some point said, what is your name, little boy? No. So by him asking me my name, that made me want to run away. Remember, for every kindness on the streets came with abuse. So because he was kind or he was trying to be kind and nice, for me, that was a radar run for your life. So he asked my name. I said, my name is Peter, you know, just Peter. And I walked away. I kind of stepped back because I thought he's about to do something harmful. And so he said, yeah, you can help me. And I took it to his car. And before I could steal something, he said, hey, here's something to eat for you. And that made me even run farther away. Because remember, every kindness came with abuse. So for us, just because you're kind didn't mean you're really nice. That meant abuse will follow. So that was what I was reading. So I walked away so quickly because I was afraid he's going to harm me because he gave me food. So I was waiting for the worst part. And then I saw him the next week. He called me by my name, which really made it special because it was more like hearing my mother say, Peter, where are you? Peter, where are you? For him, naming me by name, it really was special in a way. But at the same time, a radar to run for my life, but he will always give me food and I will go away, you know? And so finally I, I kind of learned the pattern. He comes on Monday, he comes between, you know, five and seven. He always parks here. He always buys one, two, three, four. So on Monday, I knew I don't have to steal. I'm going to have this human being that knows my name and two, that will give me food without having to hustle. So he did that for one year and a half. So for one year and a half, he would always come to and I would get a meal. So not only did I trust him, but 
it took me a while to trust him, but he didn't give up, you know? And I think that's the wrong thing that we do with people. We say, well, I gave you food. Why don't you trust me? Well, no, there's so much baggage about me that you need to pull the layers and the layers. And I need to trust you that you're good. You know, as I said, kindness to most of us who've gone through trauma doesn't mean anything good. It means danger, danger. And until, you know, one year and a half, he said, Peter, would you love to go to school? And I was like, you a fool. Why would you want to go to school? I'm a street kid. I smell. I'm dirty. I'm garbage. My father told me I'll never mount anything. I mean, look, I mean, see, you don't, you don't look at me. School is for people who are special, who dream, who have a hope, who have a home. I am none of that. So that's why I said no, you know, and he didn't give up. So later he came back and instead of saying, would you like to go to school? He said, Peter, if you go to school, there'll be lunch, dinner and breakfast. Remember, he spoke my language. My whole world of survival every day was food. So he put school and included school in it. You put school and included food in it. And yes. that's why I went. So for me, I went for food. I didn't go for school. you know. <laughs> so uh, it's, it's amazing. But again, he had to earn my trust. He fed me for one year and a half. And that's what helped me to truly trust him first. And then his family took you in and and you started to shift this idea of, um, you said, James saw in me something I was incapable of seeing in myself. And this was where you really start to shift and think, I'm somebody, right? What are the other things he offered you as he brought you in? So he put me to school. He bought me school, school shoes. I had never had a pair of shoes before. And he brought me uh, several clothes. But when he put me in school, it was a boarding school. So then I began to see kids who, you know, looked like me, kids who were, you know, surviving and, and, and doing well in school. So I began to see myself like, wait a minute. I'm not just a street kid. This person sees me and knows me and he's put me in a place where people look normal, you know, in some way. So I had to learn a few steps of what normalcy was. That was meaning wearing clothes, taking a shower, being among other kids, not having to steal. Trust me, every time they went to class, I went through their stuff because I wanted to steal it. But then I would think about it at the end before I take it. I'm like, wait a minute, a food. If lunch comes, I'm going to miss it. So I'm not going to take it. So it was small little steps that really kind of helped me go through, you know, and then a few months later, he invited me in his home. And then I saw his home and I saw how he treated his family and I saw how his kids really treated me. So now I, not only did I see hope, but I began to see something I would dream to be. I want to be like this man. If there's a good dad, there is, this is my example of a dad. So now he began to be my idol because now I had taken a few steps in my own life to begin see the glimpse of hope that I never seen before. You know, that that vision of hope and just what you were capable of shifting that whole mindset was probably the greatest gift he gave you. What we focus on expands. When you were able to focus on um, positive things, thinking of yourself in a different way, you got different outcomes, right? Correct. Yes. So what helped me was, was like, wait a minute. So if I don't beat someone, they're going to keep giving me food. So that's positive one, you know, then positive two, 
uh, if I can sleep on a bed, because at first I was sleep on the floor, but I was like, well, I can sleep on bed as well and wear a uniform. So that means the kids will include me in their games. You know, if I show up at a football game, the kids will. So I began to see where people would let me in, you know, uh, and then I went to class. The teacher didn't say you smell or go back. He said, yeah, Peter, how can I help you? And it's like, well, you want to help me? So I began to see people draw towards me and now I began to say, I'm going to take that. I'm not going to take a step back, but I'm going to take a step forward, you know. But think for me, the turning point was where I began to see the words of my father, because my father said, you never amount to anything. You're garbage. I wish you never born. So I have no to feed you. Now I began to turn them around, say, wait a minute, this man never wanted the best for me. But I think there's more about me that I never knew, you know. So I began to say the words from my father are not true and are not true if I choose to not listen to them, you know, because those will come back in my mind. I say, eh, no, 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 no. And also I began to realize that if I go back, I was giving a chance for my father to win in some way. <laughs> it was like a competition of my father mentally, like. If I go back, then he's winning because he said I will never amount to anything. But this person has seen the best in me. So if I move forward, I am winning to what he thought of me. So those are the things that really began to help me in some way, helped me to look back of the challenge that I had to go through the voices and then maintain them in some way, own them and maintain them. And when they showed up, I knew how to say, no, not today. Not today, not today. And that's really what helped me to move one step at a time. And then I began to see that I was smart in school because I would get F, F, F. And then the teachers would say, Peter, good job. And every time I got a D, they're like, well, job, Peter. And then I said, if they say, well, Peter, I should get a C. And then a C, I should get an A. And I was like, wait a minute, I'm smart, you know. <laughs> and and it's... it's it's through that, that really the voice of my father saying, no, I will not let you take me back. I own my future and I will not let you destroy what is ahead of me. I love your fighting spirit. And I also love just the wisdom and such a young kid to be able to say, I don't have to entertain that thought anymore. I, I can think better of myself. That's wonderful. You said, quote, when James saw the good in me, I wasn't very good at doing that myself, not just with myself, but with everyone. I expected the worst in people, and I usually managed to find it. Even today, I must intentionally choose to look beyond behaviors and external circumstances and see the humanity within. I think this goes back to what we were talking about with what we focus on expands. If we look at the meanness in people, that's going to get big for us. If we look at the spaces of humanity with grace and love, that's going to get bigger for us. So let me let's talk about how we stop seeing ourselves through the lens of the past, because we all make mistakes and we all go through difficult things. Um, every story is different, but that's always a component of it. And because the things we've been through, uh, you know, love your story is about reframing our story so that we can love the things that have happened to us from a place of acceptance and a place of learning from them. Right. And everybody has to do that because everybody has rough patches. So mm. we also have to figure <clears throat> out how do we see ourselves 
without just looking through that lens of the things that we've been through or the difficult things that have happened or the bad choices we've made. What have you learned about that? How do we do that? Well, this may not make me cry. <clears throat> I think it had to start with me, you know, that you have a, this is a deep boy. This is a kid who had no glimpse of hope. This is a kid who he lived just to survive for a day and all he thought about was food. But yet when he got to see me, he didn't see that, that he saw a kid with the most amazing, smart, uh, brave, kind that I never thought I had because no one ever saw that to me. And I think for me, that really helped me to, to see myself in the best way that I didn't know uh, because he he told me what bravery means. Like he, he said, Peter, I can never survive for one day on the streets of Kampala. For you to... And for you to survive for five years, you're so brave, you know? Yeah, absolutely. It's unthinkable. That, oh, what I saw as negative, he used them as good to show me like, hey, mm. you're chosen and your gift. And, uh, and that really helped me to see myself like, oh, wait a minute, you know, uh, I tend to sometimes just to see the worst in me, but hear the good things that I didn't see. And I think that's for me what helped me, that everyone, you know, everyone, we, we have the good part and we have the, the bad part. And sometimes we focus only on the bad part and forget the good one. And that for me, that's what helped me excel in life, do well in school, learn to have to behave well, uh, learn to, to, to trust people that I never trusted before because he showed me first. It began with me, you know, he saw the best in me. How can I not see the best in others? He trusted me, you know, think of it. He brought a kid from the street and he brought him to live with his family, you know? Yeah. That, that, that he could have said, man, this kid is going to do what to live to my family, but I'm not going to. But he let me. And the same, I have to do the same. And I think that's why I'm a foster parent, that I will embrace every child that comes in because it was done for to me first. And I think that helps each one of us to look through and say, uh, yes, you're going through a, a patch in your marriage. But to look back and say, but my, my parents, my best friend always saw the best in me. And lean on that and lean on what the what people saw the best in you, uh, then really focus on on that that takes you down. And I think that's where we, we, we go, not we go wrong, but where the, the worst is the best we see in ourselves. But, but I'm trying for me well, to say. Yeah, that's where the work has to be done. We have to consciously shift, like you say, and choose not to focus on. Well, and this is where reframing happens, too. You can take something like he did with you, the the dirtiness, the the strength, the wiliness of being on the street, but he twists it and sees out of it your courage, your um longevity, your fight, you know, all all of that stuff that was there for you. And and you see that differently. But see, I think that the ability to reframe and to make the choice like you did to let that shift happen instead of being stuck in the past, the lenses of the past that have either been really dark or really difficult because of what other people have said or how we've perceived things that 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 restructuring of I'm willing to accept my beauty. I'm willing to accept this different way of looking at it. And that's a choice. Exactly. And, and also to see that 
whoever said things bad to you or abuse you, they never wanted the best for you. So to stick to stay in that place where they always wanted it mm. to be, in some way you're giving them a win. For me, I didn't want to give that win to no, my I father, you know. But I said he always wanted me to fail. So for me, failing is somehow affirming to what he always thought of me. So I'm mm. not gonna, I'm not gonna give you're that fighting back. <laughs> yes. I'm gonna use, I'm gonna use this. And you know, I excelled in school, not because I was smart, but I had to just say, Peter, you are amazing what you do. I was like, oh. Oh, really? So you mean I can get a bit? And that really helped me to always look at what I see now and help me how use it as a foundation and help me for the next. You know, you you could be married and you you you've you've gone through divorce for ten years. You're miserable, and I say that is you're brave that you stayed for ten years and you survived and you're out of it. To look at it and say, hmm, how many more can I survive and how many more can I come alongside because I beat the odds of this marriage, and and, and that's for me what helped me to shift rather than see my pass as so much of a negative but see it as a foundation to help me do better because i know i know what it means to go home hungry no i don't want to go hungry i know how to use words mean words towards someone i never want to use the same towards my my kids or anyone because i know how it hurt me because i had that from my father so take lessons from what you've learned and mm. use them as a foundation to reframe your future, to reframe how you think, to reframe what you think is bad. Say, hmm, wow, I'm brave that I go to manage and go through this boss. Wow. You know, <laughs> uh, and on the other end and say, how many more can what bring on any boss i'm gonna maintain and and my my my, my joy because i've learned how to see it i've learned how to, to to not let it also take my my future in your book which by the way i highly recommend for everybody it's just such a good book really well written and you get into this whole life story you get the details of this you have a chapter in there called What Kindness Can Do. And since that's the whole focus of this, share your overall thoughts on this idea. What did kindness do for you? Well, for me, kindness really, you know, again, it was from a stranger who didn't know who I was, but it turned everything around me. It gave me hope. It, it also improved my life for my, my family as well. Not only did I succeed in school, but my entire family did well. My all siblings, five of them, have gone through university and done well. Not because they were smart, but through the kindness of one man that changed my life, that has gone to change my entire family. You know, I've helped more than 100,000 kids sponsored to say, using my story, using it for good rather than seeing it in a negative way. So through the kindness of one, one kindness of one human being, to see the ripple that it's really done along the way, giving me hope, giving me joy, giving me faith, giving me a reason to live. And the best of all, made me the best that I can be. I'm not a good dad because I have resources. I have a dad because someone showed me what a father ought to be through kindness of one. Isn't that incredible? And the reason that you're your siblings all got to go through school was because as you went through school and had resources, you supported them in going through school, right? Right. Because I knew I could not take them away from abuse, but I can give them one thing that I was given, education. But also he made me the example. I think they looked and said, if Peter can do it from the abuse from dad as a street kid and be a student and exceed, we can also do too. So he set an example for me that became an example, an ideal example for my siblings as well, through the kindness of 
just one man. I know. Isn't that incredible? And that's what I hope this podcast does is makes each of us stop and think, what can I do in the world that shows kindness in a way that has the potential for that type of domino effect? Because, you know, it starts small and can build and can do so much. So you work now as a foster. Well, I, it's a way of life, I guess, but you you provide foster care for children to give them safe places to grow up. And you said, quote, when a foster child moves from an abusive situation to a peaceful household, they feel like they've landed on an alien planet. When you find yourself in that place, all you want to do is go back to a familiar place, even if that home is hell. Hurting people do not deserve judgment. They need understanding. They need patience. They need love. They need grace unquote. And I think what you've put, what you've termed there in that statement is this is kindness. When you give patience and love and grace and and not judgment, you embrace and and bring people into good, good spaces. This is kindness. Any final thoughts about how this changes life for a person, ways that we can do it? Um, how how have you noticed this? affecting your work in foster care with your children? Well, in life, we, we all have a box on who we want to befriend or who we want to be a friend. We have a box, you know, and I think until we destroy those boundaries that we see the best in people, because I want someone who's only kind. I want a kid who doesn't cry, who doesn't cry to me. That, that's my box. <laughs> but, but having that box, basically, I get to miss out on the challenge of that child. You know, there are no seeing me or leaving that box that I have, they come from a different box. For me to let go of my own box and see the best in others, the best way I can be a dad, the best way I can understand, I want to be hard and I can speak English, I can speak kindly, but to some of our kids, they don't know what that means. Cursing me, you know, and yelling and oh, sometimes is the best way to tell me how they feel. They're saying, I miss my mom, I'm angry and I'm in the wrong place. And I miss what I used to be. For me to not be <laughs> to not be the, in the middle of that, to me, that's a child telling me what they feel. And for me mm. to be able to put myself aside and say, what I'm hearing, though it is not what I would like to say or hear, it's not really about me. This kid is talking to me in the ways that he understands and he feels. And I have to accept and love on them. And I think that is the way we really get to love people. When we take away our boundaries, our box on how we see people and include other moms. I have one mom who hated me. She hated me in every way, shape, form. And here's why she hated me. I was a black man who was taking care of her three little ones. And every time I go to see her, she would just didn't want to see me. But I kept, I kept, you know, pursuing her. And finally, she said, Peter, I have a confession. I was told as a dad and mom from a white community that black people were bad people. You know, that's all I knew. And seeing you being the best dad to my, my kids, I could not understand because I was still holding on what I was mm. told. Of all people who taught me the black people, no one showed up for my kids, but you did, you know, and you've showed me 
the bad, uh, the, the bad picture of what I was think told within my family. And they are the best family and they go to have their kids back. And I say that my whole joy is to be there so you can have your kids back, not to judge you, but come alongside and give you resources. And you can see how that be the, 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 the racial differences, you know, that she saw the best in me. And in some way I helped her to see the racial bias she had towards me. And now we're like the best buddies. But I, I, I otherwise I would have missed out on being friends uh, to their kids for sure. the rest of their lives. But I had to really put that aside and see the best in them. Oh, you're so smart. Love begets love, right? Like yeah, if you exactly. can be there patiently and not judgmentally with people, you're going to get to all kinds of places that you just would never dream of. Yes, oh, your story is so awesome, Peter. <laughs> Tell you. us about where people can find you. Tell us about your book and your current work and where they can order it. Well, yeah, so my job is I truly, I want to be a full-time dad. I want to force the 20 kids if I could, force them all the 20 kids, adapt 50 of them, but also my whole joy is to be an advocate for children, to speak on their behalf, to make sure they are seen, heard, and known. Well, you can find my book anywhere, in any store in the world, in any bookstore, Target, Walmart, Amazon. You can also order it through my website, Now I'm Known. Now I'm Known is the name of my book. Because my whole idea is to make every child seen, heard, and known because someone made me known when no one knew who I was. And that's the whole idea of now I'm known, that we can make each other's known as well. So, yes, also you can find me on social media, Force a Dad Flipper. Well, I flip houses, not children. So you can find me <laughs> at Force a Dad Flipper. But now I'm known on YouTube. Now I'm known on TikTok. And I love to show the positive lives of the kids who go through the most difficult. That's my joy. That's what I live for. Thank you for being on the show. We're This is a two-part series. So join us next week. We are going to be talking about what hate can do. And while this sounds like a really negative title, but as we continue on with Peter's story, there is a, a really insightful and progressive space in his story where, where this is just, a, it's an insightful moment. It's, it's a light bulb moment for him. So tune in for part two in two weeks and... We'll take you there. So, Peter, thank you for being here. Thank you, Laurie, for having me here. Peter's story speaks for itself. What can kindness do? It can change an entire life and in so doing change many, many more lives. Let's look for places where we can share that kind of kindness, where we can be the patient, the loving just going the extra mile in those spaces. As we close today's show, let's think about where we can give a little more kindness, where we can give grace and patience and forgiveness. That's going to look a little different for every one of us, but take a moment, if you will, identify what that means for you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for those who have left reviews for the show. I'd like to share one um, this week from Sam Sam Woo Woo is his name. And The title is This Podcast Rocks. Quote, I love this podcast. It forever changed my life. One of the hottest upcoming podcasts and everyone should listen. Unquote. Honest, I didn't write that. (laughs) Um, Appreciate the review and appreciate um, for everyone that's listening. It just takes a second to scroll to the bottom of your app and leave a review. And I'd love to hear from you. If you haven't left a review, it's super easy. Have a great day. Live with intention and we will see you um, for the second part of Peter's story. Peter's story.